You're listening to the Sunroom Musings with your hosts, Matthew and Kimberly. Join us for the ride. Welcome back to the Sunroom Musings. We know it's been a while since our last podcast, but we are here with the Promise podcast that we know that you've all been looking forward to. Um, This show is about Atlantis, the lost city, and we're here with Arthur Wilder, who has done extensive research on the subject and has uh, plenty of stuff to show us uh, relating to um, documents that were written about it uh, from antiquity all the way up to modern day science that's showing us satellite photographs of possible candidates for the city of Atlantis. And um, so uh, we, we tried to make this kind of a video show, but we're having trouble focusing on the, um, the screens right now. So we might just be able to put in some uh, links to some satellite footage and some notes for you uh, that I can edit in later on. So, but for right now, we'll, we'll describe what we're looking at to you. So Arthur, thank you for uh, being on the show. Thank you, Matthew. It's good to be here and looking forward to sharing what I know about Atlantis with your listening audience. Yes, yeah. So I know that um, there have been extensive arguments all throughout the years as to possible candidates for Atlantis. Yes, possibly Doggerland, the area between England and Europe, and the Bimini Road has been suggested down in the Caribbean. And then uh, there are plenty of uh, places in the Atlantic Ocean where the islands and things would suggest that maybe there's a submerged continent in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, But uh, if you start with the actual description of Atlantis that was written by Plato, uh, the ancient Greek author who uh, was published and we still have some of his original writings, uh, you pretty much have to conclude that there's only one place that actually fits all of the descriptions of uh, what what he described as the city of Atlantis. And, and that's, of course, where you have to start is the original description of uh, Plato's Atlantis. Yeah. And I know um, for a while, even the island of Sardinia was considered to be a possible location. But, um, I mean, when you consider the fact that in many stories of antiquity, from the Greeks to the Egyptians uh, to whatever else uh, was considered a part of a great empire back then, um, Atlantis was an empire, um, for the most part, that, they, that the Atlanteans had conquered so much territory and we're in trade with other other nations, um, that it's possible that that many underwater structures could be tied to to the Atlantean Empire. Yeah, would, some, would you say some have even suggested submerged cities in uh, India are connected with the ancient Atlantean uh, legends, such as uh, Dwarka? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, But if you uh, look at what Plato said about Atlantis, uh, apparently you go through the the pillars of Hercules out Mm -hmm. in the Atlantic Ocean, hang a left, and it's just (laughs) off to the left uh, as you go down the coastline of Africa. So um, the uh, early commentators on Plato surmised that it was all made up by Plato because they speculate that uh, he was trying to form an alliance between Greece and Egypt. And Egypt, of course, seems to be the source for Plato's information because he says he got the information from his grandfather Solon, who was talking to an Egyptian priest who had evidently translated some uh, histories in his temples and was communicating what he found about Atlantis to Solon. So Plato simply 
purports to be relating what he was told by his grandfather. And uh, the Greeks and the Egyptians had apparently uh, formed a treaty to fight against the Atlanteans uh, to prevent them from taking control of their city-states. So, uh, but if you think about that just a little bit, uh, Plato is attributing his information to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were who he was trying to form this alliance with ostensibly. Why would he make up something that he was told by an Egyptian if they had access to the same records to go and check and see if it was true? Uh, I don't think that the uh, so-called motive for making up the information exists. In fact, uh, when we found out about the structure that I'm going to tell you about in a moment, uh, you'll realize that uh, the only way to have made this information up was to have actually been there. Uh, there is no, uh, there's no way that you could actually come up with uh, a concentric ring harbor in the location where we find um, the particular geological feature that Atlantis almost has to be. Right, right. And sometimes it's kind of hard placing um, that time period of the Atlantean Empire because a lot of, uh, a lot of people tend to think, well, the the Greeks and the and the Egyptians um, forming an alliance, you know, there there could have only been so much so much time um, where they were both contemporaries. You would think, unless history goes back a lot farther than we believe it did. Right, Plato <clears throat> actually gives you the reason for that when he says that there were many floods in antiquity, uh, some of which wiped out other civilizations other than Atlantis. And the ancient Greeks had just had a, a comeback from one of those ancient disasters. And this was a, a, a predecessor of that their contemporary Greek civilization mm. that is described as having an alliance with Egypt. Do you think that this could have possibly been... Um something like what we see in the Minoan civilization? Manoa. Um, don't know. Um, the, um, origin of Atlantis being with Plato, um, the, information that uh, he bases this on exclusively came from Egypt. Mm -hmm. So Minoan civilization I don't think actually played a part in where this information came from. Okay, so this would have been much older then. Um, well, in Mediterranean history you have a island there that was uh, uh, a volcanic in nature and it probably erupted and wiped out the Minoan civilization um, and exactly when that happened I have no idea but um, the uh, catastrophe that wiped out the Atlanteans uh, is actually dated by Plato rather precisely okay he says it happened about 9,000 years before uh, his time period, which would make it approximately 12,000 years before ours. Okay. Interesting. All right. So, um, all right. So tell us a little bit more about where we believe Atlantis is today. Okay. The Gemini space mission in 1965 uh, was uh, an orbital mission designed to test out things like docking spacecraft and uh, NASA put those up as a step on the way to the Apollo moon missions. Uh, so as they were orbiting the Earth, and this was the first time you had 
uh, astronauts actually able to look down at the surface uh, for any length of time and observe the, the surface of the Earth from outer space. Uh, they were able to see things in the Sahara Desert that no one had observed before. They were told to look for craters where ancient asteroids might have hit the Earth in the past. And when they passed over Mauritania, they looked down and they saw a structure called the Rishat structure, which up to that time nobody knew even existed. But it's now called the Eye of the Sahara because it actually looks like a giant eye looking up into space. Um, and when they saw that, they first thought it might be an impact crater from an asteroid. Mm -hmm. But when they got down on the ground and examined it later, they determined that it's a rather unusual geodesic dome that had the top of it kind of scraped off. Mm -hmm. But then it left these concentric rings uh, in the middle of this uh, long valley uh, that uh, actually looks like an eyeball looking up into space. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about it is that in the lower areas between those hills that form the concentric rings, uh, there is uh, distilled salt. So they know that salt water was in those rings at one time and then evaporated. Mm. A problem with uh, it being instantly uh, identified as Atlantis is that that structure is about 1,800 feet above sea level. Right. But if you look right at the mouth of the eye there toward the Atlantic Ocean, you'll discover seashells still existing in the ground, really? which tells you that at one point that whole plateau was down at sea level, low mm -hmm. enough to where salt water was allowing sea creatures and <clears throat> shells and things to grow right there at the mouth of that, mm. what was an ancient harbor. Uh, there's a, something that your listening public needs to know about, and that's a concept called isostasy, or isostatic tension. And that is an observation that the crust or the continents of the Earth overlay a vast sea of molten magma on which the continent is floating. Right. So if the weight of the continent is suddenly decreased, then that molten magma will be pushed up underneath the continent and lift, lift it higher relative to sea level. Particularly if you have something like a melting ice cap that allows all of the mm. Arctic ice to flow into the Atlantic Ocean lifting sea level, which then pushes down on the seabed, allowing the continent mm. to be pushed up. Mm. And I think that's what has happened there in Mauritania. That used to be a very lush, tropical landscape that we're looking at. The Atlas Mountains were to the north mm -hmm. of the Eye of the Sahara. There were springs flowing out of those mountains down into the lower harbor below and the concentric ring pattern is exactly the dimensions that was described by Plato and uh, as related in his book told to him by his grandfather Solon. So the Egyptian priest I think had access to the information that established that that Rishat structure was actually the eye of the, it was the location that Atlantis used to be located in. Mm. Oh, wow. And it's interesting because, yeah, when you, when you read Plato's description, you hear about the concentric rings and the, uh, the connecting bridges between them. And then kind of that, that central island where the, the temple or the, uh, the, the fortress would have been. Yes. Um, and then the the mouth of the river that kind of let the the ocean into it, um, and the mountains to the the north or the northwest is that what we're looking at to the ab above the eye? There is that that ridge. Yes. Um, Curiously enough, the mountains just to the north are called the Atlas Mountains. Really? Okay. 
and uh, on an ancient map of Herodotus, the city of Atlantis was denoted as being exactly where the eye of the Sahara is. So although Herodotus's map was dated a few hundred years after Plato was writing, uh, nonetheless, apparently they passed on the coordinates or the approximate location of where the city that uh, Plato was describing was located, and it's exactly where the Rishat structure is mm-hmm. on uh, the ancient maps of Herodotus. Um, you, I'll have a link you can uh, post post on YouTube or somewhere to show the viewers where Herodotus put, put Atlantis, but if they just Google for the map of Herodotus, they'll find Atlantis right beneath okay. the Atlas Mountains. Uh, the uh, description that Plato gives also discusses the kings of Atlantis going by canal into uh, their territory, which was to the south of a tremendous plain below Atlantis. They would go periodically during the year and collect the harvest from the canals that they had dug for purposes of aquaculture. So. Atlantis was described very extensively by Plato. Uh, their habits, their uh, patterns of warfare, their customs, their, uh, the way their civilization operated, uh, how they were fed, and they used a variety of aquaculture apparently, and curiously enough, those canals are still visible by uh, Google Earth if you go down into the south of the uh, uh, continent of Africa, you'll find many rivers that before the desert was there were originally dammed up that fed these canals. And for some reason, the ancient civilizations that were there uh, had converted an area that's approximately the size of Alaska into cultivated canal fields. Mm. They were growing something in those canals that was very important to their civilization and they had established a way of life that's completely different from what we understand now. Since we farm the fields, they farm the canals. They raised fish and they had something growing in that canal that produced fruit for them and uh, also some kind of uh, roughage like lettuce or uh, seaweed or something that they ate to sustain their civilization. That's interesting. It is really interesting. So their lifestyle was just completely different than what we would understand. And maybe just a little different than how Disney describes Atlantis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And of course, I mean, we're told that they're a a warrior um, society, that they were highly engaged in in conquering... um, the lands around them and establishing a foothold as a as an empire in it and um, a trade center um. well of course uh, Plato refers to the gods creating Atlantis mm-hmm. and um, how mm-hmm. in antiquity the gods had no need for war or combat Uh, They decided everything uh, amicably by discussion. And uh, he goes on to describe how the gods would control mere mortals as if guiding them by a rudder of persuasion according to their own pleasure. Right. Um, So uh, Plato has a little bit different approach to how the gods operated than we would think of in our religious pursuits these days. But uh, nonetheless, um, he goes on to describe many aspects of Atlantean life. And the hot and cold springs that you referred to in the citadel in the center of, uh, of Atlantis apparently still exist in the Rishat structure. Hmm. That's one of the observations that they made on the ground was that there's a spring in the center really? that uh, gives forth forth both hot and cold water. This was described in Plato's description of Atlantis. Uh, now, until 
the Gemini space mission and they found this, it was fairly easy for the uh, historians and for the uh, people that were reading Plato to dismiss it as being a fictional work. Because as many of, as uh, places of, as I've traveled, I have yet to come across a concentric ring harbor. And uh, these vast areas that were cultivated by canals, uh, you know, closest I can think of would perhaps be the Netherlands or uh, some other uh, mm -hmm. place where they have uh, uh, built some dams and things. But extensive canals like Plato described seem to be just a fanciful invention to mm -hmm. most of these ancient historians that read Plato. And that is why the classical folks uh, probably uh, were well justified in thinking it was a myth. <laughs> but once the Rishat structure was found, and there are actually concentric rings to an ancient harbor, and there's an explanation for how that ground would be lifted up through a sustacy with rising sea levels at the end of that last ice age, then all of a sudden it would take pretty much a clairvoyant uh, profit to uh, predict that a concentric ring harbor would be found in exactly the same place Herodotus denoted it on his ancient <laughs> Greek maps. Right. Uh, so. I'm, I'm persuaded that even if there wasn't a vast civilization, someone had seen the Rishat structure and maybe even from above in an airplane or outer space, <laughs> Yeah. if you want to get crazy about it. Uh, but let's just think about how many other amazing things the ancient Egyptians did in antiquity. Uh, those pyramids didn't go up by themselves. Mm -hmm. Somebody cut those stones and they had access to ancient information from way back that's been lost to us. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So if they could do all those things, uh, building those, moving those giant stone, some of them weighing thousands of tons, uh, when we can't pick them up now with uh, 19, 20 of our strongest cranes and that sort of thing. Yeah then they had access to information and technology that, that we don't have. Now, was it actually Atlantis? Uh, well, I think probably that is where it, the, uh, the, the legend originated. Mm -hmm. um, how, how technically advanced they were uh, is anybody's guess. Uh, but even the stones that uh, Plato says that their temples were built out of, which were red and black and white, those stones are still lying on the ground in rubble heaps over there in the Rishat structure. Hmm. And there are ancient forts that, that line the coastline where the ancient seabed would have ended protecting that harbor. Interesting. Yeah. Where do you think they would have gotten the technological advancements that they used? Well, I think it came from over in uh, South America, to be honest. Uh, the uh, Pyramid of Teotihuacan over there is uh, a similar pyramid to the one at Giza. In fact, it's laid out according to the three stars in the belt of Orion. Mm -hmm. The only difference, the main difference is it's 14 and a half degrees off a of true north which means that the Aztecs, or whoever built it, uh, if it was a civilization before the Aztecs, were there at a time when the continent was 14 and a half degrees off of true north as to where it is now. But as you know, the Pyramid at Giza is spot on at facing north. Mm -hmm. So it, the Giza Pyramid was built at a time when the North Pole was already located when it where it is now. Uh, I think the uh, Aztecs or the Teotihuacan Pyramid was built before that and possibly the, the same culture that originated the need or the practice of building pyramids started over in South America and then migrated over to where it is now in Giza 
probably because they had to leave North America and South America because of a disaster that happened there. Mm -hmm. Now, so that, that brings up a, a couple questions, actually. Um, one, when we're talking about the alignment of, of True North. Right. Um, are you familiar with uh, Dr. Walt Brown, who uh, spoke of the hydroplate theory in terms of um, the flood and, and how uh, the tectonic plates on Earth would have uh, rearranged themselves um, as, as if, you know, it, in the Bible when it describes the, the um, springs of the Earth bursting forth right. during the right. flood. Um, that that underwater reservoirs of water would have exploded and um, created the the mid oceanic ridge that we see today, um, which would have sent um, crust up from underneath, um, rocketing into Earth's atmosphere and and possibly creating some of the space debris that we're getting back nowadays. Um, but that also with the rains above and from the springs bursting forth beneath that would have created um, uh, tech, uh, fast moving tectonic shift um, as the continents would slide away from each other. Um, you think this, I mean, what do you think about that theory in general and, and how um, True North would have changed over, over time um, with catastrophic events such as the flood of Noah or if this is something that's more recent, like a meteoric impact, like uh, the one that created Carolina Bays. Um, <laughs> what, what, are, what, are, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, uh, there is a uh, researcher out there by the name of Mario Biltreps, and he has undertaken a survey of ancient foundations of uh, temples and just construction and in antiquity all over the world and triangulated the cardinal directions that those buildings were built uh, observing whether or not they were pointed toward true north or how far they deviated and by observing uh, buildings on either side of the planet uh, he can triangulate the ancient position of the North Pole, assuming that those buildings were built to cart the cardinal direction. Mm -hmm. And it seems that the ancient pyramids had a good reason for being uh, faced to the north. Um, and uh, so Teotihuacan and Giza, a great period, a pyramid of Cheops, they would, they would be uh, facing... Uh, north when they were originally constructed, but there are other things, for instance, ancient sundials that had to be pointed true to true north in order to be accurate. And these ancient people, uh, when they were calculating the seasons of the year, that was probably the most important information that they were going to need to have, was when to gather the crops, when to store up the firewood for winter, uh, when to harvest and that sort of thing uh, would have been critical information. This is not something that they would have just taken haphazardly. So I think Mario Bildreps is actually on to a very important observation about uh, where the North Pole has been located uh, some tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago. And uh, he's a, a, been able to try uh, to triangulate the North Pole as or track it as having moved across the continent of Greenland uh, into the Arctic Ocean where it is now. So if you look back in time, you'll see that these buildings have been changing uh, where they've been pointed. Uh, and uh, All of this goes to say, though, that with the repeating ice ages, uh, there's actually a force that I believe would spread the continents apart, and I'm referring back again to isostasy. Uh, when the water is all concentrated in a mile-thick ice sheet around the Arctic, uh, then it's not in the ocean. That means that sea level is much lower. That means that the pressure on the seabed is much less. 
And when that pressure goes uh, away and it's all tied up at the polar regions, then there's no reason for the seas to divide in the center. But when all that ice melts and all that water comes down around into the seabed, into the ocean floor, it begins to push apart the sides of the ocean bed from the center, which pushes apart the tectonic plates. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, what drives the continental drift, is the change in sea level as it first is tied up in ice at the poles, and then when the ice age ends, the water all melts and it winds up down in the seabed and pushes it further apart. The reason it doesn't collapse on itself after that water is uh, back in the ice at the polar caps is because magma comes up, solidifies, and holds the continents apart. Right. So there's actually, what's actually happening is, seems to me, uh, to be a, a, a kind of a splitting apart of the planet which is driven by the solar cycles as the sun uh, and the earth, the earth's orbit around the sun changes in its elliptical nature uh, to point the poles closer to the sun in the summertime. Uh, And then that ellipse, of course, takes the the earth away further from, from the sun in different periods of time in those solar cycles. So you've got a long cycle, like the Mayan calendar describes, and you've got a shorter cycle within it. Right. So the, the seasons of the year are our very short year cycle, but then they, they add up to very longer, much longer seasons that are driven by the, uh, the elliptical orbit of the Earth around the sun. Sea levels rise, sea levels fall, but when they get high, the sea levels get high, it pushes the, the tectonic plates apart from each other it, and it drives a cycle of the crust moving. And so yes, I do think that um, the Earth's crust uh, is moving and what blows their mind is that it's the North Pole that moves. The South Pole seems to stay pretty much the same. Hmm. But even a classical geologist will tell you that the San Andreas Fault is a slip joint and there's a coastline of California is moving relative to the Pacific Plate and that one of those plates is going to be a lot further north. Well, if they just apply that same logic going up to the pole, they'll realize that the pole is slipping as, as a result hmm. of that as well. Right. Right. Well, that's interesting. That is fascinating. So, as far as um, Atlantean culture goes, and of course Plato mentions that it was constructed by the gods and that basically Poseidon had given it uh, its, its kingship to, um, to Atlas, his son, and then it was kind of passed down from there. Um, do you think that uh, what, what the Bible describes as the Nephilim were involved oh, in the construction of the <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> Well, uh, I believe the Bible is uh, true in the literal parts especially. Sometimes I think the ancient people were trying to describe something that was way beyond the information they had available to them. And they did the best they could to describe what happened. Uh, The the Bible does talk about the uh, sons of God God marrying the son, the women of men, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the Nephilim uh, race of giants being uh, created. Uh, the Greeks told myths about the Cyclops, uh, a one-eyed, tremendous giant that would live in caves and and trap unwary travelers uh, to eat them. <laughs> yeah, but I think they had dug up uh, the uh, ancient skulls of uh, some mastodons that seemed to have one big hole right in the middle of their skull and mm. looks like a big eye socket. <laughs> right. Uh, so they had to describe it the best they could. Uh, so those folks knew that there, that at some point in ancient time, things grew to be a lot bigger than they they are mm. now. Uh, whether mm-hmm. they be uh, giant mastodons or 
uh, dinosaurs or whatever, but they, they found those old bones and they knew things had, had, had been much bigger at some point in the past, mm-hmm. which if you think about uh, gravity, uh, it seems to me pretty obvious that when the dinosaurs were around, gravity wasn't near the force it is now. It, right. Well, I mean, the oxygen level would have been different too. The the atmospheric um, gases would have been a, a different, um, what would you call them, a mixture composition. Right. Well, if, if it's tr- very possible, depending on how the the flood actually occurred, like right. springs coming forth from the ground, along with other 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 ways to, I guess, wipe mm-hmm. out the earth. Right. Um, have you ever seen video of liquefaction that occurs on an earthquake? When the ground begins uh, yes. to, to shake at, a, say, a magnitude 8 or 9 earthquake, and all of our groundwater, mm-hmm. which is under our feet, it, you can see we have wells you know, all over Sumter. Uh, but if uh, all of the ground started shaking, all that water that's under us, but all of a sudden, jump up, uh, jump up to the surface, and quite often during earthquakes, there will be the the uh, liquefaction phenomena that'll seem to suck buildings down underground as the water underground begins to mix with the dirt above it. Mm. Um, the the uh, phenomena about water springing out of the ground. Uh, I think may describe a number of things. Uh, but uh, the biblical flood, the, the best candidate I've found for that, for that uh, is a uh, crater that's in the Indian Ocean uh, between uh, Madagascar and uh, Australia. And uh, so... Uh, Basically, uh, John asteroid hits the Indian Ocean, causes it to rain for days mm-hmm. uh, as it throws a lot of water back up into the atmosphere, and then eventually the tsunami comes up the uh, Tigris and Euphrates Valley, mm-hmm. grabs a Noah's vessel and pushes it up into the uh, mountains of arrow right around Turkey. Uh, but anyway, uh, there were other ancient floods and other eruptions and other uh, astronomical events that created flood after flood, just as was described by Plato uh, when he was talking about the destruction of Atlantis, mm-hmm. which I believe is associated, yes, with Carolina Bays <laughs> because of an impact that I believe is is obvious uh, at Saginaw Bay, Michigan, uh, which I think was the center of an ancient apocalyptic collision of a comet with a glacier that was on top of uh, Michigan about 12,000 years ago. Okay. And that's where we get into the... uh... discussion of the Carolina Bays and the the raining (laughs) down of this material into um, North and South Carolina on the coastline. um, Have y'all ever played that game where, I promise this is going to tie in, where you name an actor, well you name two actors, like if I was to say Adam Sandler, Jim Carrey, you then have to connect, or let's say Humphrey Bogart, Adam Sandler. People have to take Humphrey Bogart and say, you know, this movie, he was in it with this actor, this actor was in a movie, and somehow connect the two actors. Mm-hmm. I feel like Arthur is like that with Carolina Bays. We could say book making and Carolina Bays, and we would find a way. <laughs> we would, we, we would, would find, find a way. way to connect the two. We would find a way. <laughs> right. And I think, I think Arthur has a different... Um, Arthur and I have two different backgrounds of looking at, at ancient history, too. I, and I honestly, I love the dynamic between you two. Yeah. Because I, I'm, I'm very much more of the, like, I read the literature of it, and I love the archaeology behind it. I would say, if you haven't seen it, um, uh, if there's a documentary called uh, The Holocaust of the Giants, hmm. 
um, and it it actually deals a lot with the island of Sardinia, and right. Um, right. and giant skeletons that they had found there, and um, and I was kind of of the mindset at first that you know when they were talking about Cyclops that they had found mastodon skulls and this and that, but apparently there were um, mummified um, giants that they had found in. Um, in Sardinia, that some of them only had one eye, um, and but also I think a, a lot of that when the the Greeks were talking about it tied in with you know blacksmiths because blacksmiths would wear the patch over one eye hmm. not only to regulate the the light that was uh, not present in the in the forge so that you could see how hot the metal was, but so that in case you burned out one eye. You still had one eye that was covered. That was sure. Um, that was and yeah, but it was it was you know a it thing at the life. time. It yeah. uh, you didn't have eye protection like you do nowadays. Um, but um, Cyclops, like uh, you know, who were attributed to Hephaestus, um, who was you know the great forger uh, god of of the Greeks. Um, g- played a big part in that, and so you can see kind of where everything was tied in. Um, and, and so Arthur and I kind of dig at, at different aspects of where we get our information and how we follow the trails. So that's why I always love checking with him to see what he's discovered in his, his research. Um, and it kind of lends to, to what I've discovered. <laughs> right. Well, the, the Nephilim are, uh, definitely, a, a curiosity and that begs for a, uh, an explanation, yeah, uh, because of the language that's in the scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, all that was before Noah. So after Noah, there's presumably only the descendants of, of Noah's family. So mm-hmm. uh, unless the flood, the ancient flood, was a local event, then mm-hmm. then we only have one uh, source for our human uh, ancestry. Uh, after the time of Noah. Uh, now, uh, I'm perfectly willing to explore whether or not there are other possible sources of people that survived that flood. Right. Uh, but, you know, when they say it was a worldwide flood in the, in the scripture, I think they're doing the best they can to describe what right. they witnessed. Right. Uh, so I'm not uh, questioning their uh, integrity about preserving what was given to them right. as their history. Uh, but the uh, people in South America, they all also have flood stories, and they lived underground in caves for a while, and then had to, you mm-hmm. know, each tribe that came out was given a constellation uh, as their identity, and from that point forward, they eked out a survival in their part of the world. Uh, so uh, perhaps they uh, survived a similar catastrophe, or perhaps it was a different one you know, localized to the yeah. area of the planet. Um, Cyclops, uh, uh, interesting thing, uh, Greek mythology, uh, but also possibly uh, some recollection of very large human humanoids uh, that uh, we probably can still find, you know, graves all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and archaeologists will turn up more evidence of that. I tend to be real skeptical uh, because some of the reports about uh, digging up the giant bodies and that sort of thing have turned into be false, you know, just manufactured for uh, different reasons. Um, And some of them have attempted to involve the Smithsonian in a cover-up and all of that. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the evidence is still out. Somebody needs to come in with some... uh, (laughs) You know, some hard evidence and uh, x-rays and pictures of skulls. What I think is far more interesting is like the ones, the mummies they do have from Egypt uh, don't seem to be uh, the same kind of people that we are right now. They've got elongated skulls and all kind of weird stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. And, and we can talk about the uh, the Paracas <laughs> skulls from Peru. Yeah, and, um, yeah. And how uh, lots of those, and, and I'm assuming you follow some of the Brian Forrester oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, I've got his book sitting over there on the yeah. <laughs> case there. I, I like to uh, watch Brian on YouTube because 
he actually takes you to the place and shows you what he's talking about. He did not make any of this stuff up. So um, uh, I'm very interested in the things he's, he's turned up. And it's obvious that there was a worldwide civilization because of the megalithic construction that's so similar right. all over our planet had to be done by the same people sharing the same information mm-hmm. about how to you know carve these giant rocks move them around and tie them together with these pieces of metal and it's like um we were talking the other day about easter island and how they've uncovered the bottom portion of these statues the Moai, that, yeah. that we had no clue existed for yeah. i mean yes even some kind of writing on the back of those moai really yeah so uh, but the uh the hexagonal or the irregular shaped stones that fit together so precisely Mm -hmm. uh they're they're the same kind of architecture you find in uh peru and cusco uh, on uh mountains uh, all around up there in in peru and out, out also in uh, ancient Japan, I, yeah, you know, the, there's giant megalithic uh, stones precisely fit together there as well. Somebody went all over the planet sharing that technology. Now, what's your belief then on like a theory right now? I don't know how long this theory's been out there um, about the purpose of the pyramids and there being a reason that they faced true north and something about the caps of the pyramids were made of a specific metal or something and it was used for communication well once again jury's still out that's kind of my thought because because (laughs) so far i mean there's all these fanciful theories about how they're power stations and you can uh, you know fuel them with different uh, gases and uh they emit energy and all of that, but I haven't seen a single bit of, of proof of that yet. Now, when they test drive it, I'll watch it. <laughs> right. Now, Robert Houdin, I think, has probably the best uh, description of how those things might have been built with interior ramps. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I follow uh, what he's put out there. Uh, it seems to me that the Egyptian authorities aren't real thrilled with his analysis, uh, wanting to keep their um, control over the unpacking of ancient Egyptian uh, history. But uh, Houdin uh, has a engineering company that's helped him do a lot of 3D animation of how the pyramids might have been built. I saw a little of that. Yeah, apparently they can actually, you know, uh, make that work. So uh, that's always been my test. If you know how to how they did it, we'll go build one, and then I'll yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll pay attention. Yeah. Uh, well, um, I this is kind of where we uh, wrap everything up at right here. I think we've covered a lot of ground. And I think we've kind of set forth some stuff that we could talk about in the future. Absolutely. Um, with regards to uh, megalithic sites in other countries, um, you know, Baalbek and um, Teotihuacan, Sacsayhuaman, um, uh, Machu Picchu, and, and all of these other sites around the globe that show that there were indeed megalithic builders and technology that we don't have today. And... Um, and that Atlantis could have indeed had that technology as well or been part of the purveyors of it. It might would just be cool to do a Seven Wonders series. It would be cool. It would be well, cool. I, what is it, Eight Wonders now or something like that? Seven, the Seven Plus Wonders of the World. I was taught Seven Wonders in school. It's grown oh, yeah. since then. But <laughs> <laughs> Probably has. But well, there's certainly a lot of weird things out there, but Atlantis, I think, is much more than just a myth. Mm-hmm. And I think Plato was spot on reporting what information had been given to him and that the Rishat structure has every probability of being exactly what he was describing. So uh, we thank you for listening in. Um, And like we said before, uh, for those of you who want to see what we were talking about, um, we'll include some some photographs, some satellite images of the Rishat structure. 
um, so that you can see the uh, the Atlas Mountains and the um, the the dried up riverbeds that are clearly running from the eye of the Sahara out into the western uh, area of Mauritania and where the um, the water level would have have been uh, much higher at one point in time. Um, so, uh, what do you what do you think our question of the day should be for this episode? Ooh. What do we? What do you think, Arthur? <laughs> if you had to pose a question for our listeners, what what would it be? Well, uh, what caused the destruction of Atlantis? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Plato describes the uh, condition of Atlantis after the tsunami washed it away. He said it was like a sea of mud that prevented the ships yeah. from uh, accessing, uh, gaining access to Atlantis. In other words, it wasn't underwater at the mm. end of it all. It was covered it, in mud. It, it was covered in mud. And now it's uh, in the middle of the Sahara Desert because it's been lifted up. So I, I think uh, his, Plato's description of its destruct, destruction was uh, accurate, that the ancient people had knowledge of it and preserved it historically for us in the temples of Egypt, and that all mm. that information may surface again one day as the archaeologists are uh, plying about in the ancient temples of Egypt. We may find all of that information in a way we can understand it. Yeah. Too bad we don't have the Library of Alexandria. Yeah. Still. Oh, so don't. That's still a sore spot for a lot of people out there. Yep. It's, we're, <laughs> we're still upset about that. Well, we thank you all for listening. This is all the time we have for you today, but I want to thank Arthur for joining yes, us. Yes, thank and you so much. Giving us all this information and uh, a wonderful podcast. So we hope to... Uh, meet with you again soon and talk about more stuff looking forward to it. don't we have a new country that's listening oh yes we have germany we have some germans that tuned in for thank our you, podcast recently you. so thank you for that so we're up to how many what is it, nine oh countries? gosh something like that yep so let's get some more countries in there invite your friends <laughs> germany <laughs> so uh thank you all for listening we will see you later on the podcast uh sunroom musings and uh Like us, follow us on Facebook, uh, leave us a comment, and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye.